You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. In the not-too-distant past, when you wanted to capture a moment in time, you took a picture with a camera. And by camera, I don't mean an app on your phone. I mean an actual device that had one singular function. Like, it did one thing. It was an actual camera, and it had this thing in it called film. And the thing about these cameras in this film is that when you took a picture... You couldn't see it right away. You had to wait for the film to be developed. And because a whole roll of film would cost you something and each one only had a limited amount of of pictures you could take on it, people were very discerning and thoughtful about the pictures you would take. So you wouldn't take eight pictures of your burger before you ate. In fact, I would go so far as to say no one took pictures of their burgers back then. So you were discerning, and then, and then you'd have to go and take this film somewhere to be uh, developed. So uh, here's just a quick crash course in how the old school film cameras would work. So a camera is essentially a light capturing device. And so when you press the button, an actual button that, that, that moves up and down, um, you would, you'd press the button, and a shutter would open very briefly, very quickly, uh, uh, like within the blink of an eye, and it allows light to enter in to, uh, to the camera, and it would, uh, that light would hit the film that's inside. Now, the film is coated with a light-sensitive chemical called silver halides. I have no idea what they are, uh, but that's what's on them. And so when light strikes the film, it triggers this chemical reaction, forming a latent image onto the film. Now at this point, you still don't have uh, a visible image. What, what, that latent image is invisible um, to the naked eye. And so in order to make this uh, image visible, you need to develop the film. And so this process happens in a dark room. You've seen it on like the movies. It's kind of red. Red apparently does not um, uh, uh, ruin um, the film, but regular light like that's in here uh, would overexpose the film and it would ruin uh, the captured image. And so in this dark room, you would start to take this film and you would place it in a series of baths uh, with different chemicals in them. The first bath would contain um, chemicals that would react with those silver halides and it would turn them into uh, a metallic silver. And this reaction starts to form um, the visible image. Darker areas would contain more of this silver and lighter images would, uh, lighter areas would contain less of it. And so after a certain amount of time, uh, when the image has fully appeared on the film, you want to stop that chemical reaction so that it doesn't continue. And then you would put it in a second bath that would stop that process. It's called a stop bath. This halts all those chemical reactions and prevents the, the image from being overdeveloped. 
Then uh, you would take that film and you would put it in a fixing solution that, remain, that removes any of the final, uh, any of the remaining um, chemical elements on there so that you have a stable image that can now come out into the light of day and not be ruined. And now you would have a stable image. The film at this point is still not something that you would put in like a photo album. What you have now are the negatives. And then from the negatives, you could then create uh, images and prints of various sizes. In other words, this film that would sit inside this camera was like a blank canvas waiting for a a, a painting. The camera captures the scene with this sudden burst of light, leaving an invisible impression on the film. And then that impression is later revealed through a process of development. This morning, As we continue on our series through the book of Exodus called Deliverance and Devotion, uh, we are at a a hinge point um, in the book. You see, God has delivered his people. They've been liberated out of slavery, and yet they are an undeveloped people. In other words, there's this latent image just waiting to be developed. And in order for that to happen, they need to go through this development process in the hands of a skilled developer. Just like a a photographer uh, takes the pictures and then they go through this process of development in order to reveal this latent image. That's what God is doing uh, in this section of um, the book of Exodus. See, the people are standing now on the eastern side of the Red Sea. They've been liberated. They've been set free. Um, God has started to now um, take them through a series of tests to develop them. And so the last couple of weeks we've been looking at how God has um, tested them. And they've gone through um, what we might call some genuine crises. I mean, um, in the desert they traveled three days and they lacked basic necessities like food and water. Which led them to consider, okay, God has uh, delivered us out. But can we trust him to provide and sustain us on the journey? Um, Last week we saw as they were uh, making their way towards Sinai that they encountered a very antagonistic nomadic tribe with ancestral animosity and they were seeking to destroy them. And that brought them to this crisis of faith to consider, can we trust God to protect us? Not only will he provide for us, but now will he uh, protect us? And each one of these circumstances forced them to consider the character and nature of God. Like, who is this God that has delivered us? Can we trust him for our safety? Can we trust him um, to lead and feed us along the way? And each, through each series of these tests, God was uh, bringing them to these moments in order to stretch their faith, in order to develop and mature their faith. You see, friends, One thing we have learned over the last couple weeks is that development is the path of the redeemed. God will redeem you, but he will also develop you. And in order for us to grow, our faith must be tested. And now we come to Exodus 18. And what's so remarkable about this chapter is how unremarkable it is. It's ordinary. Like this is the first time In a long while, there's no battles, there's no miracles, there's no major crisis. It seems rather domestic. And if you were to reduce this passage down, it's this. Moses is reunited with his family. He has a conversation with his father-in-law. And then the next day, Moses goes to work. I mean, it's just very domestic. 
family and work, ordinary life, and yet God is at the center of it, using the ordinary, everyday stuff of life to develop and shape his people. So as we move through the text this morning, the text, we're going to see two truths emerge. emerge. So here's our two main movements today. The first one is this. God uses the ordinary for our development. God uses the ordinary for our development. See, we often downplay the ordinary as unremarkable and unproductive. We often think that the the normal rhythms of our life are, are just kind of filling in the gaps in between the real stuff that God does. And what this passage shows us is, no, the everyday stuff of life is very much a part of God's development plan. The good news is in God's economy, nothing in our lives is wasted. The miracle then of this passage is that God uses the ordinary to develop. The second movement we'll see is that God uses our limits for our development. In God's design, the way he has created us, we can't do everything. Like you're not great at everything. You can't do everything. There are, uh, we have certain limits in our lives, and these aren't a result of, of dysfunction or sin. We are limited because God has so chosen, chosen to make us limited. It's by his design. This is not like, like what it means to live in a fallen world. There certainly are limits because of that. But even before the fall, God made us limited. And God will confront us with our limits as an opportunity for our development. So let's get into the text. We're going to start in chapter 18, verse 1, to see our first point, that God uses the ordinary for our development. So here again, the word of the Lord in verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard about all that God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, we haven't seen Jethro since chapter 4 when Moses left Midian to go to Egypt. And a lot has happened since then. When Moses left Midian, all he had at that point were the promises of God. He had just met uh, God in the burning bush. God had made all of these promises. And so he's got these promises and he goes to Jethro and says, Hey, I'm, I'm going to go back to, uh, to Egypt and um, see if uh, uh, the people are still alive and what the situation is. God had told him that he would deliver his people out from their affliction in Egypt with a mighty hand and with awesome wonders. And now those promises made have become promises kept. God has been good to his word. And now the people are headed to Sinai where the Lord will establish his covenant with his people. And what's more is that word has begun to spread about what God has done in Egypt. The text tells us that Jethro at this point has heard about what God has done for Moses and his people to bring them out of Egypt. Now this is incredible if you think about the ancient world. Like today, the fact that people know what's happening everywhere, like almost like in the moment it's happening, is just kind of the the, the way of the world today because information travels instantaneously. But in the ancient world, let me just remind you, there's no internet. There's no social media. There's no evening broadcast news on TV. There's no radio, no newspaper, there's no telegrams, no postal service, no modern transportation. It's all just oral word of mouth 
spreading by foot on trade routes. That's how word travels. And at this point, word has gone forth. If you remember a couple weeks ago in Exodus 15, when we were looking at the song of Moses, one of the uh, prophecies in that song, forward-looking elements, was that word would go forth. It would go ahead of them, almost preparing the way for the people to take on uh, the promised land. And we see that starting to come to fulfillment, that that, that, that Jethro in Midian has already heard about all that God has done. Verse 2, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Moses' wife Zipporah after he had sent her back and her two sons, one of whom was named Gershom, for Moses had said, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land, and the other Eliezer, for Moses had said, the God of my father has been my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So apparently, at some point after Moses left Midian, he sent his wife and his two sons back to Midian. Now, we're not told about the events of how that all went down. This could have been before the Exodus. It could have been after the Exodus. We're not really sure the timing or the reason. But uh, nonetheless, they have gone back to Midian. And now um, Jethro is coming back to reunite Moses um, with his family. Now, I love the way that Moses names his two sons. If you think about it, their names tell his story. His first son uh, is named Gershom, which sounds like the Hebrew word for stranger there. So this name expresses how Moses felt uh, when he was alienated and exiled when he left Egypt. If you remember, he had to leave the only home he ever knew when he came to the defense of a fellow Israelite and killed an Egyptian. Remember, he had to flee because Pharaoh was trying to, uh, to, to kill him and apprehend him. So he fleed from the only home he ever knew and he was alienated and felt exiled. And of course, he meets Zipporah. They have uh, their son. And this, this name for Gershom um, expresses Moses' feeling of being exiled. But then... You look at his second son, his name is Eliezer, and this sounds like the Hebrew uh, for the word, God is my help. God has become my help. And he realizes that his exile has become his salvation, that God has taken um, the events and situations and circumstances in his life and used them for his uh, salvation, that God came to his rescue, met him in his exile, and uh, redeemed him and delivered him and his people um, out of slavery. And so their names tell the story. So every time he looks at his two sons, um, Gershom and Eliezer, he's reminded of God's faithfulness. And look at verse 5. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and his wife, came to Moses in the wilderness where he was camping by the mountain of God. And he said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you, along with your wife and her two sons with her. And Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other about each other's welfare, and they went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and Egypt for Israel's sake, and all the hardship that he had come along the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Now, if you remember when we first meet Jethro, we're told that he is a priest in Midian. Now, we're not given any details about what their religion involved, but suffice to say, he's not an Israelite and he's not a follower of Yahweh. He's of of some other kind of religion. And as Moses and Jethro are reunited, Moses shows him um, respect and honor 
and they embrace his family and they begin uh, to catch up. And we're told that this, uh, this, this reunion is more than just a, hey, how are you? Some kind of quick exchange. They actually uh, go into uh, Moses' tent and um, uh, Jethro has heard these stories. He's heard of what God has done and now he wants the details. He wants to hear like what, what, what's true, um, what's been exaggerated, uh, was there anything left out in the reports that I've heard. And Moses tells them all that the Lord had done. He tells them about the meetings with Pharaoh. He tells them about the signs and wonders. He tells them about the plagues and all the back and forth negotiations. He tells them about the Passover and the death of the firstborn. He tells them how they left, in, uh, they left Egypt that night in haste, filled with all of this plunder. He tells them how even some of the Egyptians saw the power of God and decided to go with them and follow Yahweh. He tells them about how um, in the wilderness God had led them with a pillar of cloud and fire. He tells them when they got um, pinned up against the Red Sea with nowhere to go, no escape. He tells them about how he raised the staff of God and how the the, the waters of the Red Sea um, pulled up on the left and on the right and were congealed so that they were able to walk safely through on dry ground. He tells them about how uh, when the last Israelite had passed through and they looked back to see their enemies and how the Lord um, flooded them back and, and allowed the waters to crash over them. And, uh, and how they were uh, uh, saved from, um, from their enemies. And he told them about how they had journeyed in the desert and how they had gone without water for three days and how they were desperate for water and all the ways that God had provided for them to provide food and manna and quail and just an abundance in the scarcity of the desert. And he told them how God had continued to test them and to stretch their faith. In other words, Moses told Jethro the good and the bad. He left nothing out. He told him about all the glories. And at the same time, he told him about the hardships and how God had been faithful to deliver them through it all. He goes on in verse 9 to say that Jethro rejoiced because of all the good that the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered from the hand of Egypt. Verse 10, Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you from the hand of Egypt and from the hand of Pharaoh, who has delivered the people from the Egyptians' control. Now I know that the Lord, Yahweh, is greater than all the gods. For in the thing in which they dealt proudly against them, he has destroyed them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron and all the elders of Israel came to eat food with the father-in-law of Moses before God. In other words, Moses shares the gospel with Jethro. It's the gospel in the Old Testament. And notice, he doesn't use fancy apologetics. He doesn't say, hey, Jethro, tell me about uh, your, your, your religion, and let me kind of um, break it down and show you why uh, it's, it's not right. He just tells the story. He just tells them what God has done, and he does so with God as the hero of the story. Now, this isn't my main point I want to make this morning, but it is worth mentioning that learning to tell your story with Jesus as the hero has been and still remains one of the most effective means of evangelism. I mean, you don't have to know apologetics. You don't have to be well-versed in, uh, in, in how to uh, you know, make a, uh, 
a well-articulated defense of the faith. You can be equipped to share the good news simply by telling your story, the good and the bad, the hardships and the difficulties, the glories, and all the ways that God has been with you and for you to save you. And it's a very effective form of evangelism. You don't need to become um, an expert and know how to answer every single skeptic's question. You don't have to become an expert in theology. Just learn how to tell your story about how God has delivered you from death to life. Don't leave anything out either. Notice how Moses also tells about the hardships. It would have been very tempting. You know, he's sitting there with his father-in-law, you know, and he knows, like, I've taken your daughter out of, out of Midian. It would have been very tempting to kind of gloss over the fact that following God often involves difficulties, right? But Moses doesn't leave that out. He says, listen, we've been following the Lord, and there's been hard days, and there's been um, easy days. And, and that's part of living the Christian life. And what happens? Well, Jethro puts his faith and Yahweh. I would argue that he's not just simply glad that things have worked out for Moses and his daughter. He has confessed the greatness and supremacy of the one true God. And then he repents of his sin. How do we know that? Well, he offers burnt offerings and sacrifices as a means to say, I have sinned. As he offers these sacrifices to the Lord, he knows that his sin deserves death. That's exactly what a sacrifice is. A sacrifice is saying, um, please accept the death of this animal in my place. I know that I should die. I know that I don't deserve the life that you're giving me. And so if you would please take this as a substitute for me. And then he sits with the elders of Israel. They eat a meal together. And he is welcomed in as a new member of the community. Now, here's what I do want to highlight in this section. Moses resists any temptation to tell the story with himself as the hero. I mean, think about it. Moses is the prophet of God. He has been instrumental in the deliverance of Israel. And he has been a really faithful mediator for the people of God. This would have been a perfect moment for him to prove himself to his father-in-law, right? To kind of show, hey, I, I am deserving of your daughter. You didn't make a, a bad decision in allowing me to marry her. Like I've done a really good job uh, in delivering the people out of Egypt. You should kind of be impressed with all that I've done. He could have told the story in such a way to still tell the facts, but to do so in a way that really brought all of the spotlight onto himself. Because you see, every single one of us lives with a desire to be affirmed, commended, and to feel accomplished. J.R. Vassar, in his book, Glory Hunger, says this, God will make a way to renew his commendation over us, restore his image in us, and will not bring uh, and reclaim the lost greatness for us. But our reaching for glory will not bring, this about, bring about this transformation. No, God will come to us and it will be his work, not ours. It is reaching that robbed us of this glory in the first place. Grasping for glory is the one sure way to miss it. 
See what Vassar is saying is here. Moses could have reached for glory. He could have grasped for it. But in doing so, he would have missed out on this transformative moment. And here, Moses resists that temptation. Instead of putting all the spotlight on himself, he puts the spotlight on God. And here's what I want you to see. That resisting the temptation for his own glory and keeping God at the center of everything while ordinary and often unseen in the moment is what actually brings about this kind of incremental development that results in dramatic transformation. So here's what's happening. In this moment, he has this decision to make. He can either tell the story in such a way to promote himself And in reaching and grasping for that glory, this would have been a missed opportunity. But instead, he kept God at the center. Instead, he resisted the temptation to grab that glory for himself. And in ways that are unseen, like you couldn't look at Moses in that moment and see transformation happening. But in that moment, when he resisted that temptation incrementally, but, but really, he is growing in spiritual transformation. And you may not notice it in that moment, but when you compile those moments over a lifetime, you start to see dramatic transformation. But we often miss it. We often miss it because we think of transformation in terms of cataclysmic kind of events. We think our spiritual transformation um, works kind of like those dramatic makeover shows. You remember those where you get someone who uh, was kind of frumpy and then they would go through this makeover and then in 22 minutes they've, they've come from someone no one would be attracted to to someone like everyone's attracted to. Or like those, those remodel shows, they take this house, it's a dump, right? And then in 30 minutes it's like, oh my gosh, like, you know, Chip and Joanna Gaines have just like redone this house. Now everybody wants to buy that house. And we think that's what spiritual transformation looks like. I show up one day to church looking all frumpy spiritually. And then after one sermon and a couple of songs, I'm going to leave out of here looking like a brand new person. But that is not how the Bible speaks about spiritual transformation. The biblical transformation takes place incrementally moment by moment, in the ordinary stuff of life over the course of a lifetime. I just want to, I'm going to give you a quick biblical theology of spiritual transformation. Just consider for a moment the pictures of growth that God gives us in scripture of how change happens. One picture of growth is uh, agricultural, like farmers planting crops. You ever planted something and gone out the next day to harvest it? Well, no. Why? Because it doesn't happen overnight. Galatians 6 reminds us that God is not mocked. We will reap what we sow. Many of the analogies in Jesus' teaching are agricultural. It's It's on purpose saying growth is slow. It's often unnoticed and you can't expect change overnight. In the parable of the sowers, the faithful are like the seed that falls on good soil That sprouts, takes root, grows, bears fruit, and then yields a hundredfold harvest that ends up replicating itself. And friends, that does not happen overnight. Luke 8, uh, verse 15. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Can we just say that word patience altogether? Patience. 
Patience means waiting. It means time. It means it doesn't happen overnight. Consider the analogy of children. Ephesians 4 verses 14 to 15 says that the purpose of godly leadership is to equip the saints so that they grow into maturity so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. He uses the analogy of children. Leaders are to help develop the saints because we, we, are, we are born into this as children. Peter speaks about our maturity as Christians in terms of children who move from milk to solid food. That doesn't happen overnight. John says that we are children now and one day we will be like our big brother Jesus when we see him. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. John is picturing our spiritual growth happening over a lifetime. When children are growing, you don't notice it day by day. They're with you every day. You don't notice incremental things. You only notice their growth when the shoe doesn't fit anymore. Or that shirt that when they first got it, engulfed them has now become a crop top. You're like, I think we need to get you another shirt now. Because you've grown. You didn't notice it every single day. But then there are these moments where you see it. Or consider runners in a race. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. The scope of this race is our entire lives. When, when scripture speaks of runners, it's never a sprint. It's never the 100-yard dash. It's always a marathon, a lifelong maritime, marathon. At the end of his life, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, I have finished the race. Took him all the way to the end of his life to say, I have now finished the race. In the meantime, we are to run our race with endurance, like the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 1. That we are to run with endurance. Why? Why do you need endurance? Because it's not quick. It's a long race. So you don't want to burn out. You want to pace yourself so that you make it to the end, so that you can say, like Paul, I have finished the race. Each of these metaphors remind us to seek to give us perspective that transformation happens over a lifetime and that every day is an opportunity for growth. Friends, how often do we overlook the mundane? How often do we overlook the ordinary? But every single day, is an opportunity for growth and development. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed. What? Day by day. You know why you, cannot, you don't need to lose heart on today? Because it's an opportunity that God is going to use day by day to bring about your transformation. The overlooked miracle of Christianity is that God is with us day by day, renewing and working in ways that often go unnoticed. 
They're not Instagram worthy. You know, you're not going to make a story about it. But they are good, true, and beautiful nonetheless. Friends, the pictures of growth that God gives us in his word invite us to take a longer view of sanctification. A longer view of sanctification. Which means you need to shift your expectations from the fast and immediate to the slow and the gradual. If you're going, it's not going fast enough. Well, Scripture's telling you, I know. I told you that. You have to shift your focus from the fast and the immediate to the slow and the gradual because it's the way of God. God uses the ordinary, everyday stuff of life to bring about our good and gradual development. That's our first truth I want you to see today. The second one is this, that God uses our limits for development. Look with me at verse 13. On the next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you were doing for the people? Why are you sitting by yourself and all the people stand around you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes to me and I decide between a man and his neighbor. And I make known the decrees of God and his laws. And Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out both you and these people who are with you, for this is too heavy a burden for you, and you are not able to do it by yourself. So after this family reunion, the next day Moses goes to work. And part of his role as the leader and the prophet of God is that people would come to him to settle all of their disputes. And apparently they had a lot of them. From morning until evening, Moses sat listening, issuing decisions. And the way the text is written is that there was like this never-ending line. It was like the RMV, you know what I mean? And you can have an appointment, you can have a number, and you can still not get called. And Jethro sees this and questions Moses. Now he's not questioning whether or not the people need help settling disputes. What he questions is, why are you doing this alone? It's not that Jethro is against third-party arbitration. He's just against Moses being the one person to to settle all these disputes with a million people. He's saying, there's just no way you can do this on your own. He is essentially stating the obvious. You can't do it on your own. If you do this, you will burn out. And so will the people. It's not just merely something for Moses to consider. Also the people, I mean, they need to get on with their lives. They don't need to be sitting in these these, uh, weeks-long lines just trying to have a, a, a dispute settled. Like, they need to get on with their life. And so Jethro has a plan. Verse 19, now listen to me. I'll give you advice, and may God be with you. You, you be a representative for the people of God and Uh, bring their disputes to God. Warn them of the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. But you choose from the people, capable men, God-fearing men, men of truth, those who hate bribes, and put them over the people as rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And they will judge the people under normal circumstances. Every difficult case they bring to you, but every small case they themselves will judge so that you may make it easier for yourself and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing 
and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure and all these people will be able to go home satisfied. So here's the plan. Local leadership at multiple levels so that the people have a system and a structure for life. It's a brilliant plan. It's organizational leadership 101. And he tells them, make sure you find men who are qualified to lead both in character and competency. They've got to be trustworthy. They have to have discernment. They can't be those kinds of men who are easily bought with bribes. And they should fear the Lord and not men. And so Jethro says, listen, not just anybody can do this. You've got to find people that you can trust, who are competent, who, are, who are, or, or are, have the character and competency to do this kind of work. And Jethro advises that Moses set up a structure that becomes manageable and scalable, that spreads the burden of leadership from a singularity to a plurality. And as it turns out, The concluding verses tell us that Moses hears Jethro, he receives his advice, and he puts that plan into action. Now, there is a lot to learn here. We could glean from this. Uh, We could write a whole HBR article on um, organizational leadership, and there have been talks and sermons on that. That's not what I want to draw out um, this moment, uh, in this uh, uh, sermon. What I want us to focus on is that in this moment, Moses is confronted on his leadership. He's criticized. Now, Jethro is not attacking him. This isn't unfair criticism. He's not seeking to undermine him and become the new uh, leader. He's not challenging him. He's simply pointing out, hey, uh, the status quo isn't working. It's not good for you. It's not good for the people. And he points out people are having to wait too long, and eventually Moses will burn out. I mean, just imagine for a moment the burden of hearing case after case, hour after hour, day after day. Every case comes with a new situation, a new context, new personalities, new details, and the the burden of leadership to make a decision. And then when that's over, you've got to completely switch contexts and have a new Uh, situation and context and personality I mean the drain of this context switching is emotionally draining physically draining mentally taxing and Jethro is just pointing out the obvious Moses you can't do it all what is he saying Moses you have limits you have limits and in the moment of criticism Moses could have looked at his father-in-law and said are you kidding me right now Five minutes ago, you were a pagan priest. And now you want to come in here and tell me how to lead the people of God? Jethro, do you know who I am? I am the capital P, prophet of God. The buck stops here. You see the staff I'm holding? It parted an entire ocean. Like, I'm the man No, he doesn't say any of that. He says, he doesn't say, I'm doing fine. I can handle it. Hey, uh, you know where the comment box is? I'm the leader. I don't need your help. When I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. But that is not how Moses responds. Instead, he humbles himself and allows Jethro to speak into his life. Instead of prideful rejection, Moses chooses humble reception. 
Now, how is this moment of spirit, how is this a moment of spiritual development and transformation? This is another moment of spiritual transformation because in this moment, Moses recognizes that he is by nature limited. And so instead of making it personal, instead of thinking that he's making some kind of character judgment on him, he says, wow, Jethro, you have pointed out something that I had failed to recognize. I mean, isn't the temptation of sin always some element of fighting against our limits? I mean, think about the Garden of Eden. God places Adam and Eve in the garden and he says, you can eat from every fruit in the garden except for one. Adam, Eve, there's one limit. And they can't handle it, right? They're allowed to eat from every tree but one. They can't handle it. Why? Because they don't want to be limited. None of us do. None of us like declaring our weaknesses. None of us like declaring our limits. Sin is always tempting you to think that you have none and should have no limits. If you want it, you should have it. Pride says, I can do it all. I don't have limits. But in this moment, Moses rejected the pride to say, I can do it all. I'm the man. And he humbly receives advice to say, you're right. I do need help. So friends, this morning, I want you to consider, how do you respond to your limits? Notice I didn't say, do you have limits? I'm assuming for the sake of reality that you do have limits. So the question is not, do you have limits, but how do you respond to them? Some of you, like me, like to push right past them like they don't exist. Just head down. I'm just going to force my way through this limit. Or do you ignore the warning signs of being overextended? Do you ignore the warning signs of overwork? Do you want to be seen as the one who can do it all. So at work, they're like, man, you can just hand this guy anything and he'll get it done. I mean, we just, we kind of have like a bet going, like how much can we put on his plate before he cracks? Right? Do you want to be seen as the one who can do it all? Look at her. There's nothing she can't handle. Maybe you know, okay, I'm not limited, limitless, but I want to be seen, at, if I'm going to have limits, I want to be seen as the one who has the least amount of limits. Have you considered the limits of your personality and your temperament? And by that, I don't mean using your personality or your temperament as an, an excuse to sin. I simply mean just spending time understanding that God has created you in unique ways that we should understand. Like we're not all the same. We need to understand our limits. He has created us with a fundamental finitude. You aren't great at everything. You can't do everything. It's like the worst motivational speech ever, right? But in God's economy, it's actually really good news. You have limited time, limited mental capacity. You have limited energy. You have a limited ability to focus on things. And the list goes on. Sometimes our limits come with our current season of life. Just where you are right now, you, have, you might have a, a new child who demands more of your time and attention than before. You have limited energy, limited focus. So what are the limits of your current season? 
if we just assume for the sake of the argument that you don't have unlimited time, unlimited resources, unlimited bandwidth, unlimited anything, you start to consider what are my limits? What can I say yes to? What do I need to say no to? Think about how you're wired emotionally, intellectually, physically. All of those have certain capacities that are different in the way that God has uniquely made you. And when you come to understand how God has made you, you can come to grips with those, uh, those finitudes and those uh, limits, not as obstacles to your power and control, but gifts from God. See them as an invitation for you to say, God, you are God and I am not. See, only God is limitless. That's part of his nature. And by our very nature as humans, we are limited. I think most of our burnout, most of our stress is because we are trying to live as if we don't have limits. Trying to give what we don't possess will lead to a life of constant frustration. And here's the beauty of this moment in the story. Moses is teachable. He has a posture of receptivity. He humbly confronts his limits and receives Jethro's advice. And what happens? It leads to healthy thriving. No longer is Moses bearing the impossible weight of singular leadership. The people start to become developed, right? Now they have to uh, start becoming people uh, and bearing that responsibility. They need to be trained in how to discern things. They need to go, I got to start caring about my character if I'm going to step into this position of leadership. People aren't standing in lines all day. Others get raised up and they too get to participate in God's kingdom, not merely being consumers, but now as contributors. People are now served more efficiently. Everyday conflicts get the attention that they deserve. Not every single problem needs to go all the way to the top. And all of this is preparing them to be a developed people so that they go from being an unorganized mass of people into an organized, functioning, thriving nation as they enter into the promised land. Friends, by God's grace, he redeems, he delivers, and in his loving kindness, he doesn't leave us there. It is great to be delivered. It is great to be redeemed. It is also great to be developed. Development is the path of the redeemed. He will use everyday, ordinary opportunities as means of our development. You can bet on a daily, if not weekly basis, you will find opportunities to confront your limits. And the question is, what will you do in those moments? Because all of them are designed by God to be purposeful to bring about your growth. I want to close by sharing a story from a man named Oliver Sacks. He was a neurologist and he wrote a book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Dr. Sachs was a neurologist and this book is filled with essays and stories um, from his work as a clinician. And he tells the story of a woman he met who was in her 60s at the time when he met her and she was both blind and she had cerebral palsy. And as he sat with this woman, um, he was immediately impressed with how intelligent and eloquent she was. And so Dr. Sachs uh, said to her, you, you must be very proficient with Braille. I mean, it, he could just tell that she was so well read. 
And this woman responded that she didn't know how to read Braille because she, ne- she didn't know how to, uh, she couldn't move her hands. And so people in her life had always just read to her. And so, you know, the wheel started turning and he said, hey, asking her, like, did something happen? Was there like another accident you were involved with that limited your mobility? And, and, and the reason he asked her that is because typically cerebral palsy doesn't affect uh, the hands. And, and so she started talking back to him and telling him, no, nothing ever happened to them. They've just never worked. In fact, she called her hands useless, God-forsaken lumps of dough. So Dr. Sachs had an idea. So he got together with the nurses in the hospital and he said, listen, when you bring her food, put it just outside of her reach. And at first the woman thought it was strange and even slightly cruel. She began to get frustrated and angry. But eventually after a few days, something happened. She finally was able to grab a bagel and she was able to bring it to her mouth. In addition to being so excited that she was um, being able to eat, she was shocked and surprised that for the first time in her life, she had the notion that maybe her hands weren't useless, godforsaken lumps of dough. Over the next few months, through occupational therapy, she gained an incredible amount of mobility in her hands. And she even began, uh, she asked for clay, and she began to make these clay sculptures. And within one year, she had become locally famous and was known as the blind sculptress of St. Benedict's Hospital. You see, her whole life, people had done things for her. And as a result, her hands became useless. In other words, her hands became underdeveloped. What she needed were opportunities for movement. What she needed was to be pushed. She needed to get frustrated. She needed to be stretched. She needed to, be, uh, she needed to fail. And she needed to press forward on a path of development. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. God doesn't simply deliver us and redeem us and then just do everything for us. He will put us in situations and circumstances that will stretch us, grow us, in order to develop us. As you consider the season of life you're in right now, know this. You are not there by accident. God in his loving kindness has placed you right where you are. As you look at the week ahead, at the things in front of you, perhaps these are opportunities for development. He loves you too much to just do everything for you. He loves you too much to make your comfort his highest goal. He loves you too much to leave you unformed and immature. Paul tells us that God loves us so much, Philippians 1, 6, that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ.